Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About History Beneath the Skin. Barbara Duden teaches history and conducts research at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the German city of Essen. She specialises in what she calls body history, an effort to understand and describe how the very substance of the body changes over time. In this, Duden goes beyond the commonly accepted idea that representations of the body vary historically. She tries to take history beneath the skin, into the dark interior of the body where the deep imagination of each historical epoch shapes our very substance differently. Her first book, The Woman Beneath the Skin, has just appeared in English translation from the Harvard University Press. A second work called Woman's Body as Public Space has just appeared in Germany and is now being translated. She appears on Ideas Tonight in conversation with David Cayley, who prepared these programs. An American friend tells the story of a pregnant woman who was having lunch at a restaurant. She was approached by a stranger who took her wine glass and poured out its contents. My friend says this kind of thing is now not unusual. The stranger presumably felt that she was performing a civic duty and upbraiding a woman who was endangering her fetus by drinking. A pregnant woman is no longer just someone who is expecting a baby. She is a receptacle for life, and the maintenance of life is everybody's business. Her belly is no longer a private space. Her pregnancy no longer an event that acquires its meaning within the horizon of her personal history. Her interior has become a public space, and the being who dwells there, a political personage with rights that people in restaurants feel constrained to defend. Barbara Duden calls this being the public fetus, and she has tried to understand how this new, now almost taken-for-granted reality came into existence. Barbara Duden is an historian. Her first book, now translated as The Woman Beneath the Skin, appeared in Germany in 1987. The book is a commentary on a seven-volume work called Diseases of Women by one Johanna Storch, a physician in the provincial German court city of Eisenach in the early 18th century. Storch kept detailed, often verbatim records of what the women of Eisenach said to him about their complaints. And through his pages, Duden was able to discover the traces of an embodied existence utterly different than the one we live today. She concluded that the body itself changes historically, and she began to study what she calls the sociogenesis of the modern body. Instead of taking objectified, scientific descriptions of the body for granted, she tried to subject them to criticism, asking herself not whether these descriptions are demonstrably accurate, but rather what they say to us about who and what we are. For example, what does it mean to a pregnant woman to identify the baby she imagines and awaits with the monster fetus which appears around her on billboards and placards as the emblem for an endangered resource called life? At the time this interview was recorded, Barbara Duden was teaching in the U.S. at Penn State University. There she taught a course called The Social Construction of Woman as a Scientific Fact. Perhaps I could start best with telling you a story. Right. I was teaching at Penn State for three years, and uh, I got very interested in the students that I was teaching with. And one of the students was Tracy. She was going to be trained in uh, being a social worker. 
And uh, I invited the students to have dinner with me. And the first time they didn't come. And then, because, I don't know, they thought this was kind of an indecent <laughs> invitation or something. And then they came, next time they came. And then I offered something to drink. And then one of the students, Tracy, said um, she's not going to take uh, apple juice because she would get a sugar high. And she was not sure whether she could then control her impulses. And that was an incident where I realized that this woman, a 22-year-old woman, in a way incarnated facts out of the nutritional sciences about levels of, I don't know, the chemical ingredients of sugar, levels of this stuff in her body that would then produce reactions in her body, so that I suddenly realized that she inhabited a body that for herself was basically a space in which scientific facts would react the way how she has learned that they react in a scientific textbook. And uh, the longer I, I was working with the students, the more I realized that the training they get as students does something to their mind inasmuch as it blurs their capacity to making a difference between personal experience and what it means being a woman, sleeping with a man, embracing a man, or embracing a woman, or eating something, or feeling the weather, or experiencing cold, or whatever, and the same phenomena as they appear within scientific descriptions. So my encounter with these students taught me something about a new situation in which scientific facts become part of, say, the mental framework of these young people, and then they gradually shape the experience of their own bodies. So that I got more and more interested in the, the sociogenesis, that is the historical genesis of scientific facts, into common parlance, becoming part of a pop science that then shapes the experience of women. And my book is a contribution to, or will, I hope, will be a contribution to this issue. Now, I wanted to do this on, in one particular area, and that is in the area of the history of pregnancy. And so I'm teaching a course on this, what I call the social creation of women as a scientific fact, on the gradual transformation of the experience of pregnancy through science coming in into this experience and gradually redefining it in scientific terms. We can't experience ourselves without metaphor. Yes. And if you look through uh, just normal talk, you find all kinds of metaphors of which we're unconscious, where we may compare ourselves to cars mm -hmm. or horses or God knows what. So do you see something radically new here? Something that human beings haven't always done? When Plato says that the universe is like a bow and a lyre, or when someone in the 12th century reads mm -hmm. the, sees you know, over the door of the church that someone reads their sins in the book yes. of life. And, yes. and again, people are ascribing to themselves uh, the qualities mm -hmm. of books in that instance. Like yeah. This yes. has always been part of it, human life and must inevitably be part of it. So yes. what is new but the, here? I think what is new here is the stuff out of which basic terms are being shaped and in what sense they relate to the body. Because when I look at the history of pregnancy, or I look at the basic terms in which, for instance, conception was being imagined, 
and I read Aristotle, and I read within the Aristotelian tradition, then the words that are there, and that, of course, are metaphors, say metaphors trying to speak, to convey uh, about something that you cannot see. Yeah? But even so, they were metaphors that were very, very strongly related to one's sensual experience. They were related to, say, for instance, hot and cold, to something that you could touch, to matter that would be slimy, to the experience of some fermentation or what matter does, or blood does, it coagulates, it sits. So a woman in, in a popular culture in the 19th century, when she would imagine the growing in her inside, uh, the metaphors she would use are related to the world in which she lives and that she has a command about and that she knows something about, while the terms that are being used now all come out of a world that has nothing to do with the senses. It is technologically mediated. The technology that mediates it, that makes it accessible to the vision, for instance, is a technology that these people don't know anything about it. So what I have been concerned about as a grown-up woman in the last two or three years more and more is that the world in which I move now has changed in as much as the key terms that are being used to describe a woman's experience in being pregnant are drained more and more of being able to speak about something that you can feel and grasp and know in a carnal sense or in a visceral sense, know something about yourself. They are new words and they convey less and less something that is accessible to one's own sensual experience, and thus that is something that is connected to one's own history as a woman and in one's relation to a man or someone one loves. Yeah? And it seemed to me that in the beginning of the women's movement, we, were, we said the personal is political. So we wanted to make personal experience visible and, and say it has, we, we have a right to start from our personal experience and to express what happens to us as something that's politically relevant. And what happens now is that it's almost a reversal and the realm of the personal of a woman now is being invaded by this popular science terminology that redefines the most intimate and personal areas of one's experience. If we take this concretely, can you contrast uh, the experience of a woman in the 18th century, which you've studied, or even of your mother, and, and, yes. and now, in yes. terms of how a pregnancy is experienced? Yes, I did a talk once, a lecture, in which I went back. I started with the defining terms that a woman would use in the 1970s to describe what it means being a woman. Yeah? And then I went back in time, say, like a crab, I went back in history. And it's very interesting how very soon terms that we cannot think away, like a term like reproduction, like fertilization, like reproductive choice, now we have uh, third-party reproduction, all these new terms that came up in the last 10 years, that they disappear. My mother would not have carried a fetus. My mother was pregnant. When she was pregnant, she was carrying a child. She had some ideas about how this would be, but there weren't all these terms around in which she would speak today. And the more I go back, the more I realize that 
these modern terms fade and then I move into a different landscape in which the signs of the body, the words you can use, the observations you do, more and more seem to me to be related to, say, one's own story and we move in a different world. Where do you yeah. see the, the watersheds in the this watershed transformation? In the, the watershed in the history of the body is the late 18th and the early 19th century. Because I think the basic terms out of which the modern body is being created change at the end of the 18th and in the beginning of the 19th century. Now Foucault has described that very well with the creation of an objectified anatomical body of description that comes out of the clinical practice. and. For me, one thing is very important. In the late 18th century, you still, women could still speak about bodily experience in which the soma, that is the flesh, and the emotion, in the very terms you could use, were not separated, in which the inner movement in the body yeah, was important, while the 19th century body then gradually is made up of completely different ingredients, yeah? And this body that was being defined by medicine in the course of the 19th century belonged to medical treatment and belonged to the terminology of physicians in the course of the 20th century becomes an entity that more and more people learn and are being trained to ascribe to themselves. And I think we are at the end of this history in which something that could be isolated and defined in the laboratory or in the clinic within the special language of a profession, moved out of this very defined area and moved over to become uh, something that then bounces back into the experience of women themselves. And now they, when you ask uh, women what they think, what it is when they bleed, yeah. So they would come up with all these terms of premenstrual syndrome and they know that it has to do with sickness and they, and they know something about the uh, shedding of uh, uterus lining and so something you cannot feel. No? And what this takeover of scientific terms into one's self-perception does to a woman is that it makes her dependent on professional counseling. And so deprives women of the capacity to make sense in a very different way, in a way in which their experience is rooted within their own personality. I think it depersonalizes, very much so. When I speak with these women students in Penn State, I think they live in a world in which they are very poor, because there is all this poverty of these terms that actually don't lend themselves to be metaphors because they don't convey anything. Don't yeah. people just make new stories out of these new entities that they learn to ascribe to themselves? So one learns to bond with one's baby, so one talks with one's fetus, that one puts the pregaphone against one's belly so that hubby can also speak to the baby. I mean, yeah. don't all these things in a way constitute it uh, new stories that people tell about these I think things? It or is it really so completely denatured and depersonalized that people just experience themselves as a, a general space, a typical instance of certain scientific phenomena? 
I think you could not survive being a, a physical bundle of reproductive choices, uh, sexual frequency, health in the standardized way, healthy nutrition, the uh, necessary amount of sleep, and so on and so on. I mean, then you, you cannot live anymore. I'm, I'm quite convinced of that. So I think we live probably in a world in which people incorporate, say, different layers so there are personal stories and then there are bits, odds and bits of these scientific, of these fallouts of uh, scientific and professional descriptions. And elements of, of these different and in a way incompatible worlds are part of one's own mind frame. That is the sentimentalization of scientific facts, in a way. Yeah? And, and I'm very afraid of that. In other words, you're saying you can't make a real story yes. out of these terms. Yes. And that very much limits what is possible. Yes. Yes, it recreates you as a kind of modern zombie. I think there is a basic difference between being pregnant or embracing a man. Now, I love a man, so, but maybe as well that this pertains to a lesbian woman, embracing another woman, that there is a basic difference if what I do there and how I judge what I do, how I look at it, how I feel it, if this comes out of the texture of me, Barbara, in this life story that I led, or if I do it in terms that comes out of description and diagnosis that is being done in a, in a completely other realm, that is the realm of science, the professionals, textbooks. I think these two realms are, in a way, incompatible. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. Because you're saying that all these terms are invented for purposes of prediction and control. Yes, yes. So they're not very amenable to shaping, yes. uh, really, a story. Yes, yes. For many years, I was active in the whole issue about decriminalization of abortion in Germany for many, many years. and. It seems to me that the terms in which the debate is being cast have changed very much. A friend of mine in Germany, she has a, a clinic that gives counseling to pregnant women. And she said 10 years ago when women came, they would speak about the, the conflicts with their mother and or the, that they slept with this man that they didn't like to or not at this moment or why for this or that reason they didn't take on a condom or what. So there are all these little stories and you know, no, I can't have that child. I have to get rid of it. Yeah? And they sought this out in talking with this counselor that now, 10 years later, women come and they use terms that are new, so they speak about this growing life in their uterus, they speak about a responsibility for a life, they speak about an unborn life or something, and this friend told me that somehow she experiences that women talk in terms that were being used in, in politics. Formerly, women were pregnant, and that was that, yes. Now, it's not any longer that women are pregnant, but in a way they, they are trained, they learn to speak about that in terms in which they are the uterine environment for fetal growth or the environment for a life that is being defined in 
degrees of complexity of the organization of cells, to which then are ascribed these political values. Yeah? And for a woman yourself, you cannot sort this out within these terms, because the realm in which you experience this uh, has to do with your own history. So I got very interested in, say, in asking myself this question, in what way is it possible politically to argue for the legitimacy of a private space that is private in a much deeper sense than, say, that privacy that was the issue of uh, the Roe versus Wade decision. Yeah, What I experience as a woman looking back 10 years is that what 10 years ago seemed to me something like science fiction now has become a reality. We have a, a completely new actor that wasn't there 10 years ago, and that is something that I call the public fetus, to which there is ascribed personhood, values, the need for protection, the need to be a patient, and the ultimate value of representing a life. And um, there is basically no, no voice that women can speak that seriously demands that what happens in women's interior has nothing to do with all these ascriptions yeah, that basically have a function in the ecological discourse or they have a function for the churches or they have a function for conservative politicians. But the womb in as much as it has become this public space in which there is this public fetus that then symbolizes for these different societal groups, different values, has become a space for contest that it used not to be. And it seems more and more that the voice of women to speak in their own way has been muted or muffled. You mentioned a minute ago a number of groups Yes. whom you intimated have a powerful interest in the public fetus. Mm -hmm. You mentioned churches and so on. Yes. What for them is the public fetus? Now, you, you know, or perhaps you know, last April there was a, a big meeting of pro-life people in front of the White House in Washington, and uh, taken from the uh, description in the newspaper, it was a huge crowd that was there, and uh, the Vice President Quayle addressed that crowd, speaking about the value of life to these people. Now, on top of these, or above these people, there was a huge balloon, and in this balloon there was a critter with four stump-like legs, and this balloon was floating above the crowd, and this balloon seems to represent something that is real, so for, say, for little Mary, who is down there, when she looks up, she thinks, oh, this is the child, no, this is uh, John in mother's belly. Yeah? Or for the church people, it represents a life. Or for a lawyer, it represents uh, the need of protection for a value that is being ascribed to life through law. So we have a new situation inasmuch as the content of the pregnant womb has become visible in a public fetus, 
that is being represented in these fetal images that we saw and these fetal images are being used by different parts of society and they represent abstract values and they give substance to these values so that say the whole discussion about life within the abortion issue would not have been possible without say the technologically rooted creation of these images representing the content of the womb that then can become a public emblem for other groups. So, for instance, for me it's very interesting the function of the Catholic Church to give substance to science-generated elements of body perception today. In the abortion issue, we think that the Catholic Church all since the beginning of Christianity was interested in protecting life and thus being against abortion. And of course this is not true at all. This is not true at all. Because the church once was interested in the soul and in the baptism of unborn, quickened beings that would have to be baptized in order to have the possibility to enter into paradise. And that was all. I mean, that was the mainframe in which the abortion issue, if the church was historically part of that abortion issue, did take place. Yeah, And the church talked about a life that uh, basically happened in paradise or in, in eternity or something, no? or after the last judgment. So what the church does actually is it's lending its say, power as an old traditional institution in backing and giving substance to science-generated definitions of reality here in, in women's bodies. Yeah? I'm interested in why you think it's doing this. You've made clear why you think this public fetus, this emblem, denatures the lives of individual women. Why, what is the interest of the many professional agencies who also adopt this emblem? Why concretely do they do it? That's difficult to answer. Now, certainly the professions gain from this. Say, the medical profession gains from discovering or having discovered in the last 10 years a completely new realm that is this prenatal life and defining the content of the womb as a potential patient. I mean, you, if you go through nurse magazines, you will see this. So it's very clear that this is a whole area that then is medicalized and thus is an area in which money can be made. Yes, that's one thing. Let me speak about Germany that I know better and that I went to um, in the last year. In Germany, the whole discussion about abortion has taken on an incredible importance, as in the United States. It's almost the issue in which uh, the moral stance of a politician is at stake. Yeah? Now, you have to ask yourself, how does it come that this society puts up the issue of abortion as the one decisive issue on which basic values of this society are at stake. And it seems to me that this issue of abortion and the protection of unborn life has a specific symbolic function today in a world in which more and more people are afraid because of 
say, the threats in the environment because of that they realize they eat something that is bad to them. They realize the weather, somehow something is weird with the weather. So somehow in a world in which more and more people realize that something is threatened, that you could define as one's survival, the public fetus being an emblem for a life gives substance to the talk of a politician that he is concerned about basic issues that are important in the survival of this society? Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's mm -hmm. evident that, that the analogy between the fetus and the spaceman uh, yes. is, a, is a powerful and, and resonant one. Yes. I, I think you are right that there is an analogy, there is some kinship between the image of the public fetus as we got used to see it and the image of the blue ball, the globe, as it was seen from outer space, both disembedded in a way from their context, both small and threatened, all-encompassing. And uh, I think there is a kinship between these two images and the way how they are being used either in the ecological discourse or now in the discourse on life that just could not take place without that image, I think, in this way. What yes. is the meaning of the term life as you're using it here? When you speak of, of the, the horror of people ascribing to themselves the, the existence within them of a life, or life as you just used the term a yes. moment ago, what does this mean to you? Um. I speak, I, to, I speak, I you know, as, as yes. in recognition that many people use this term reverently, yes. perhaps innocently, and that for you it has a much more sinister it connotation, is. and I'm asking you why. Yes. I must make a detour yeah? to explain this. I learned very much from a book of Uwe Perksen's. The book is called Plastic Words. Uwe Perksen is a medieval historian and linguist. He analyzed a new class of words that came up in the last 10 or 15 years, and he calls them plastic words. Sexuality, reproduction, energy, production, information, communication, all these terms. The characteristic of these terms is that they do not define anything precisely. They do not speak about something real. That's one thing. At the same time, they connote, as one says, they have a specific ring. They say it's scientific, it is professional, it is... Um, oh, he has 28 characteristics <laughs> for these terms. They are disembedded, they can be used in the United States or in Germany or in Japan. They are global. They do not lend to any experience. You cannot experience something like this. And I think the term life is now a word that belongs to this class of words that are completely void but are very important to be used in a political discourse in which you can pump them up with any meaning that you want. Now, of course, I am not a life. I am Barbara and I come out of this family and I was born in 1942 and so on. And when I, I, I think when I was, when, when my mother was pregnant with myself, she would not conceive of that she was carrying an unborn life. She was pregnant. And, um, she was expecting. Yes, or she was expecting, right, that's a term, or she was in good hope or something. And then in the 60s, there 
suddenly there was this usage that there were so many American lives that were being lost in, in, in the war in Vietnam. And, you, and so the state started with this body count. In, in World War II, when they spoke about casualties, it, there was not lives that were persons that had died and they had this age or this profession and so on. And then in the 60s, the Americans started with this body counting and spoke about lives. And for me, it is a term that is a break to the tradition historically in which we would speak about people as persons. And then the church would speak about life in the beyond or that the Jesus word in which he said, I'm, ich bin the, I know it only in German. Ich bin die Wahrheit und das Leben. I'm, the, I'm the, the way, the truth and the life. Yes, yeah. yes. Or, or I'm, I, I'm the one through which life comes or something. Yeah. So the church was talking about a completely different life that had to do with faith, with the incarnation and the beyond. And now we have this secular term in which that is being fed through popular notions about biology because a life, if we imagine it, it's made up of biological functions or something. It's completely abstract. It's void of senses, personal history biography or something, but it is just a life as the most abstract noun that speaks about a particle of a biomass. And we uh, can bespeak our reverence at the same time that we express the intention to manage this. Yes, yes. Is that right? Yes, yes. Uwe Perksen did an interesting history of this term, yeah, and you can see that the term life living, being alive in the 19th and then in the 20th century moves from partly common parlance, partly being a term that is very strongly used in a context of faith into the realm of science and especially biology and then moves over in now in the in the last 20 years the term moved over into say becoming a term that is being used to legitimize uh, political measures, and that is very new. No, it is, it is a term that is open for all kind of manipulation. It doesn't say anything, because the moment you think about yourself or you think about your neighbors or your friend or your, or your pupils or something, you cannot conceive them as lives. Because if the moment I conceive them as lives, I strip them of all dimensions of whatever meant humanity in the past, because say it's the most abstract term in this sense. And when I speak about a life in the womb, I speak about the unfolding of cell division. In her forthcoming book, Barbara Duden talks about the origins of the contemporary use of the term life. She traces it back to Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who in 1801 introduced the term biology into the French language. He defined the object of the new science as life. For Duden, the invention of biology has to be understood in terms of what historian Carolyn Merchant calls the death of nature. Pagan antiquity imagined nature as a pregnant womb. For the Christian Middle Ages, the aliveness of nature was the expression of the continuing creative activity of God. Modern science, for the first time, attempted a mechanical explanation of nature. It eliminated from its explanations questions about the origin and purpose of existence. Explaining nature as mechanism 
turned the existence of purposeful living beings into an anomaly. How could a dead cosmos produce living beings? Lamarck supposed that the secret must lie in the organization of matter. His work was the first expression of a tendency in biology called vitalism. Vitalists have been trying unsuccessfully ever since to graft a vital principle onto a mechanical explanation of nature. In other words, life in its contemporary sense expresses not the aliveness of nature, but its death. It is what Arthur Kessler once called the ghost in the machine. The term drifted out of science, where it could never be satisfactorily defined, and into popular usage, where it became what Duden calls an ideogram or emblem for everything that we feel to be scarce and endangered around us. Barbara Duden believes that understanding pregnancy in terms of ghostly abstractions like life undermines a woman's experience. Her insistence on this point has put her at odds with sections of the feminist movement which she herself helped to found. In the late 70s, Duden was part of a women's collective which established Germany's first feminist journal. She felt then that the heart of feminism was its witness to women's experience. Today she feels that parts of the feminist movement have deviated from this original aim by adopting the language and methods of science. I think it has very much to do with the academization of the movement, or that this is the shadow side of women's fierce determination to make it in the academia, which on one side makes a lot of sense, and actually we got pretty far with that. And on the, the shadow side of this is that more and more we gave up our common senses or ordinary senses. We gave up the insistence to speak about the world in our own terms. I think one could analyze the feminist writing on reproduction in the last 10 years as a gradual takeover of professional and scientific terms and thus also meaning being given to women's bodily interior within these terms, so that the very resistance against these new technologies in its symbolic fallout recreates that world that you could analyze part of the resistance trying to argue against the usage or misusage of reproductive technologies that it had the function to give substance and everyday reality to these scientific terms and in this way kind of almost feminize them and thus helping to destroy the borderline between a woman's personal experience and a realm of reproduction. Yeah. So to speak of reproductive choice, even though you imagine you speak of it in the interests of women, is already to defeat the interests yes. of women. Right, yes. That's what yes. you're saying. Yes, If you cast what it means, hoping to be pregnant, avoiding to be pregnant, taking contraceptives, having an abortion, and so on, if you cast this in terms of reproductive choice, you put the individual woman into a realm of the market in which there is choice and so you can have a car, you can have a child and that means in a very deep way transform and recreate women's self-experience. Yeah. 
Why do you think there has been this blindness in feminism to the dangers that, that seem so evident to you of, of disincarnation? I think this has a lot to do with class and education. It has a lot to do that these are a lot of the middle class women. I think it has to do with the position of science and uncriticized uh, science as being the main part of the worldview of these women. It has to do with a middle class lifestyle. Yeah? I mean, the whole society sweats this out. So why should women be more intelligent? No, I think we fell into the trap that this society is just opening. No, but I think it does something to women that is particularly vicious. Yes, particularly vicious. In your own history as, as a feminist, mm -hmm. where are the turning points? If I look back over 15 years of involvement with women, women's issues, when I joined the women's movement, or when other women and I also, among other women, were trying to do something in Berlin and taking up the issue of housework, there wasn't yet a women's movement, no. And that's very difficult to believe today because, because afterwards it always seems as if that's uh, natural that it was there. I was working with other women to get a monthly journal, feminist monthly journal, on the way. And we were very successful. And there I learned for the first time that without an institutional backing, just right out from scratch and without any experience, we could just do it. Yeah. to make a journal, to learn something about printing, to be able to write yourself, to be able to organize the distribution of a journal like that, so that if you study what you want to do, you can do it. So I think that was very important in its stance against the necessity that whatever we do today is possible only if there is an institution who pays for it, who uh, gives uh, the knowledge and so on. That was in the mid-70s. Now, then I was very much involved in writing about the history of housework. And I did this with a friend, and we were very interested in showing that women's unpaid work was not something universal, and say cooking, tending of children, cleaning and so on, that the very nature of all this work changes very much within industrial society and that it has a history, it comes into being in the 19th century, that women not always did it, they definitely didn't do it always in the same way, it didn't have the same meaning and function that it gradually has in the course of the 19th century. Now, while I was doing this, I was part of a campaign that was called Wages for Housework, because our analysis came to the conclusion that the weakness or powerlessness of women's situation has very much to do with the unpaid nature of their work. Yeah? And I wrote an article that was called Labor as Love, Love as Labor, the History of Housework in Capitalism. And we ended with the claim that all the many, many different activities that a woman does during a day, especially if she has children, and tending for the old and cooking and so on, that all this, what is called housework, all this should be paid. 
And during this period, I met Ivan Illich, and he was one of the few men that I knew that took our analysis seriously, and he started writing gender. The book came out in 1982. Now, I was furious with that book for two reasons, because Ivan Illich in this gender book has a theory about the past and a theory about the present. Both theories contradicted very much the analysis and the conclusions that I had reached at that point. We used to analyze the history of the West in terms of women's discrimination, of the subordination of women, of patriarchal power over women and so on. And that was in these first waves of academic feminism that we generally, I think, ascribe to a general victimization of women eternally or the woman as a universal victim. And Yvonne reversed that with the gender book. Illich's book argued that feminist historians were analyzing the past within categories completely alien to that past. In speaking, for example, of women's work, they presumed that the subsistence activities of women in the past could be understood within this abstract and universal category. But according to Illich, all pre-modern societies were divided by gender into separate but complementary domains. There were tools that men could grasp and tools that women could grasp, customs of men and customs of women. There was no human being as such, and therefore no work as such. Projecting modern categories onto the past, Illich argued, distorted its character and obscured any possible basis for a challenge to the present. Barbara Duden began to see just how corrosive modern categories might be, not just for the historian, but also for the ways we live together. When I was living with eight other women in a big flat in Berlin, at some point it was almost impossible to cook something for the other women without say, having this in mind that now this is housework that I'm doing and actually it is work that I can analyze in terms of time and I should use my time in a more productive way. So mentally, the, the analysis of housework, in as much as we analyzed it as housework, recreated it as one category of work while you could say, that, but this is being alive as a woman, no? being with friends or being with neighbors or cooking something or doing something. So in our analysis, we were devaluing activities, doings that are important and have to be seen in the web and warp of social relationships, of friendships, of obligations to one's children, of obligations to oneself, to friends, to a husband. And we conceptually recreated housework as another example of this abstract category of work out of which the soci this society is being built. And we continued with this general devaluation in this society in which what counts is what makes money, what counts is what gives status within an institution. Barbara Duden concluded that modern scientific categories denature both history and experience. She returned to the past with fresh eyes. In her book, The Woman Beneath the Skin, she tried to grasp the body experiences of early 18th century women 
as something peculiar and specific to their own era. Instead of understanding the past in terms of the present, she tried to use the experiences of women in the past to undermine the claim that modern science offers a universally valid form of knowledge. I choose women's bodies as a paradigm, as a prime example to understand something about the redefinition of woman through modernity in the 19th and 20th century. I think one could have taken up other examples like work or something, but I choose the, say, the scientific recreation of women's flesh as an example. So I tried moving in two directions. I did history in order to gain a distance from the present, to familiarize myself with a completely different self-perceptions of women in the past. I tried to learn something by familiarizing or making friends with these women in the past in order to look back from them, from the early 18th century into the 20th century, and having a stance from which I look. And at the same time, using my experience as a modern woman, because I can't just get out of my flesh, of course, in order to understand something about the newness of the modern situation by looking back to these women in the past. So I'm always moving, say, on two legs. <laughs> I move in the early 18th century, and at the same time, of course, I'm completely stuck in this 1990s as a 40-year-old woman. Is this practice of, of being able to move, of being able to see beyond the horizon of our own assumptions, is this for you an indispensable experience? Yes. The if we are to get out of this box that you feel that we're in? Yes. Is there any other way than this? Is this the way to for, do it? For me, it is the way. For me, definitely, it is the way, because you must have a point from which to look. So in order to create a distance to the assumptions inherent in modern categories and definitions, you must have a stance. So one possibility, of course, is how you feel in your own flesh, I think. That's one possibility. Now, I am an academic and a historian of body perception, so I choose a different road but in going back to the past. But you've already said that you meet students who feel in their own flesh that they ha might have a sugar high or that they're... Yes, or they know, then they, they know about they the... This is experience. Yes. I learned about this while being in the United States. When I came from Europe, this as an issue wasn't as clear to me as it is now. And I now, w while I went back to Germany, I tried to make a public stance within the abortion issue and then within the issue on these reproductive technologies, definitely as a historian. I try to argue from the position of the women in the past and using them as an example, say, look, there have been completely other ways in feeling as a woman. Yeah. But I might as well do this by taking, say, a black woman's experience seriously, speaking with her and trying to understand this different way without devaluing it through the scientific or middle class definitions. No, I mean, the United States is full of uh, still different worlds where you have a, a past that is present in different social classes no, yes. or in different ethnicities. Yeah. But when, I, when I, w I was also teaching black students, I had black women students, and I was really struck that one thing that they learn in an, in, in an academic setting is 
that they learn that for everything their mother has told them, now there are these textbooks and they would have to go back to these textbooks in order to find out what to do about them. So what the educational process, because it is a process, unfortunately, what the educational process does is there is this side that it devalues what they bring as experience and what they and what they bring that is that has been part of their culture so the what the educational process does is uprooting this experience and devaluing it yeah now i have been teaching this course history of body experience and i have been teaching this course on social creation of women as a scientific fact and it's very interesting how much you actually can enter into discussion with these students and help Tracy learn that this assumed sugar high is a description of a scientific definition in which she finally believes and that she incarnates in some way. And the, say the kind of teaching that I do has very much to do with this. Yes. On ideas tonight, You've been listening to the second part of a conversation between Ideas broadcaster David Cayley and German historian Barbara Duden. Barbara Duden is the author of Women Beneath the Skin and Disembodying Women, Perspectives on Pregnancy and the Unborn, both published by Harvard University Press. You can get a transcript of tonight's program for $7 or $13 for the series. Send a check or money order to Ideas, History Beneath the Skin, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. In the early 70s, a small group of Vancouverites transformed an ad hoc committee called Greenpeace into a worldwide sensation. Tomorrow night on Ideas, Ottawa journalist Stephen Dale examines this strange intersection of social activism and showbiz Greenpeace and the politics of image. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.